Hello and welcome to another episode of Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. I am currently traveling, and instead of releasing a potentially crappy episode from being super rushed, I thought it was a better idea to release June's sample collection of episodes in the place of a brand new interview or topic. In case you missed one of the month's wide-ranging episodes, check out these snippets and see if you might want to go back and listen to the whole thing. Here we go. The first episode in June was all about turning the music and podcasting equipment industries green with Andy Land, head of sustainability at Focusrite Group. And I think the next natural question after this is for anyone more inclined on the sustainability side, one of the biggest issues we have with our economy is it's all linear. It's you buy the product, it's it's made new, you buy the product, you use it until it's gone. And or until it's done, it's no longer used for its original purpose, and then it goes to a landfill. So every, there's a big movement now and a lot of talk on this circular economy. And yeah. I I read in depth, of course, because it's me, your company's commitment to sustainability statement. And this is mentioned, a circular economy. And yeah. I would love to hear more about that and where you all are in that and how close you are or how do you plan on implementing this? Because it is really a big problem. And so the fact that you're addressing it is really exciting. So how do you hope to make this a circular economy? Yeah. So yeah, the circular economy, um, for for anyone who hasn't heard the term, it's it's basically where your raw materials for making new products are the leftovers of are that are taken directly from old products that can be recycled. And in an ideal world, that is a completely closed loop. So you can make new vocasters out of old vocasters or something like that. So we we need to think about what we can do to have the biggest impact on that. And I think the first thing we need to do is, is obviously start using recycled materials. So at least someone else's waste stream is going into our products, um, which is why I've put so much emphasis so far on recycled materials that we're putting into the products um but equally important is end of life of our products and this is something that is is difficult to find out a a precise answer on because we sell lots of these and they go around the world so i don't i can't say exactly where every single one of them ends up um but i don't believe these kind of products end up in landfill as such uh compared to uh, a milk carton or something like that where it's definitely a more throwaway short-term product um, there's definitely secondhand markets for for these kinds of products that that they they pass through hands multiple times and it's it's difficult to say that they actually end up in landfill but in terms of how we're building these products there's nothing about these that can't be taken apart with hand tools uh, there's very few components that um, or, or mechanically there's there's very little on our products that would be permanently bonded together there'd have to be a very good reason for us to glue something. It makes, taking the sustainability side apart, it makes it difficult to manufacture it in the first place if you have to glue something together. So by, yeah, having having an easy to assemble product also means it's an easy to disassemble and easy to recycle product. So if you take something like a Vocaster or Scarlet, they're actually not as far as you might think away from being what you might call a a circular product. Uh, If we can get get the recycled materials in up front we're actually doing quite well i would say on that 
But obviously that's something we, we need to communicate to customers so we can say exactly how you recycle these products, uh, breaking down the materials, how you disassemble them. And that's, that's definitely something that's on my, my roadmap. Um, but like I say, because I don't think many of them actually end up in landfill uh, in the same way that kind of single-use plastics will, it's, it, I think getting the recycled materials in up front is probably the priority that we need to, to focus on for the time being. Next is a clip from an experimental episode where I went beyond the headlines and did a deep dive on Zimbabwe's request to sell their ivory and rhino horn stockpile. Let's actually break this down. And this idea came to me not too long ago. I try to stay up to date as much as I can, as much as any of us can, on what's going on in the world today. What is going on in conservation? And what should we be paying attention to? What are the issues that we need to definitely keep an eye on? And I follow Manga Bay, which is a nonprofit conservation news outlet. They have a great website. They have really great articles. And I really love keeping up to date on what they publish. And they had a post recently on their Instagram. And this was a title of the article that it announced. Quote, cash-strapped Zimbabwe pushes to be allowed to sell its ivory stockpile. Hmm. Well, that's one heck of a headline, and I definitely clicked on it to figure out, wait, what? What is going on here? And this post was by Ferrari Muckemeyer, and I do apologize if the author of this article hears this, and I completely butchered your name. I even tried to look up Google on how to pronounce it. So again, I really apologize for that. But yeah, so this was released on June 1st, 2022. And after reading this article, well, first, I want to say I really respect the balanced view that was given in it. There was both sides that were given and a lot of facts and some context, but I really wanted to do a deeper dive into what the heck was going on. So after I read that, the whole article, I did a Google search to figure out what details I could find. And the long and short of it, COVID wrecked conservation funds in Zimbabwe so in Zimbabwe, conservation is mostly funded through tourism, property leases, and trophy hunting. And all of us intrepid souls know what happened during COVID. We were all locked down. Nobody was going anywhere. And the countries that heavily rely on conservation were hit the most. Maybe even some of you were directly affected by COVID. I mean, even I myself lost my conservation travel job here in the United States, as that some of you might have heard in a previous episode about my story there. So essentially what happened is their conservation funds disappeared overnight, making it pretty much impossible to pay staff, manage their park, pay park rangers, anti-poaching units, all the things that come with properly paying for and managing their conservation work in the country was gone. And from what I could find, it costs Zimbabwe around US $25 million per year to manage their parks. 3.5 million of which is for elephant management. And get this, if you're super against trophy hunting, this is going to be a stat that might be hard for you to swallow, but is very true. $2.8 million of that 3.5 million budget comes from trophy hunters. So they definitely have a big role to play in this in conserving the country's elephant population. So this stockpile that they have is apparently 136 metric tons, which that is a shit ton, of ivory and rhino horns, which that's just thrown in there. And apparently the stockpile is worth about $600 million. I don't know where that number comes from. I try to look it up to see 
where that number comes from. Either way, it is a substantial amount of money that this stockpile of ivory and rhino horn is worth. And considering now that tourism has been crushed for over two years now, and that is what easily $50 million there in conservation funds that completely evaporated that they don't have. So a sell like this could mean a lot. So, okay. Yeah. Understandable that this is being brought to the table. And apparently it costs tens of thousands of dollars per month to guard and protect that stockpile, which again, there is no current conservation funds to fund the people that are trying to protect that stockpile from illegal activities. So it does make a little bit more sense why this issue is being brought to the table. If Zimbabwe would be allowed to sell this, then they would be saving money on guarding the pile while also making a huge amount of dough. And so Zimbabwe has decided that selling the stockpile is the best solution for them. And they're approaching CITES at the next summit to ask them to be allowed to sell their stockpile. Okay, so that is the background story. But before we make any further judgments, let's start breaking this down one by one. Following is a fun and biology-dense episode all about Yellowstone's cougars with Jack Raby, Yellowstone predator expert and PhD student at the University of Minnesota. Let's actually start talking about their biology first. So how are they a little different and what is it like to be a mountain lion in Yellowstone when you have a full intact ecosystem? Yeah, so cougars, you know, they're not like wolves. Wolves oftentimes, you know, go into an area, they love these open valleys, hillsides, plains where they can travel pretty great distances and then also find prey and then send them running. That's their kind of MO. They send their prey running because all they have is that mouth to bring prey down and they want to find a weak individual. With cougars, it's a little different. You have what we'd call a fancy word, supinating wrist, just like we have where you can turn them in and out. Um, you know, wolves, dogs can't do that. They just kind of have these paws, flat paws. Um, but cougars have these supinating wrists. They can grab things. They have really sharp claws. They're not dull. And then they also have really large canines, actually bigger than canines, canines. Um, so and a lot of times we, we think that it'd probably be more aptly named felines um, if we're looking at those teeth because uh, they're really built to grab onto an animal. And what they'll usually do is grab onto the neck, maybe the skull, and either try and suffocate it, break the neck, or you know crush the skull, which is a lot of times what other big cats will do, like jaguars, that sort of thing. Um, but cougars, you know, their anatomy is really different. Wolves, again, are built for these endurance runs. Um, they kind of have these really long legs, shorter tails, um, and they're tall. Whereas cougars are really low to the ground. You know, a standing cougar might only come up to your knee. Um, and they have these really short legs, really good low center of gravity, which is built for these rocky, cliffy areas, super long tail that helps with the balance. They can climb trees, jump across, you know, cliffs, boulders. They're built for this rugged terrain. And with that, you know, they're solitary in these areas. They're moving through these areas. They're ambush predators uh, rather than the wolves that hunt in these big groups in these packs. And a lot of times, you know, these cougars, you might have a female with kittens that are attached to it. But other than that, it's really going to be uh, a solitary individual. You, know, you might have males 
uh, in the mating time too, linking up with females. But oftentimes it's, you know, it can be a lonely life uh, for a cougar. And because of that, if you're on the landscape with these different carnivores like wolves, you got to watch out for them because a single cougar against a pack of 10 wolves, uh, a lot of times there's no chance and they're going to get kicked out of an area. So that's, we think there's part of a reason too there why they select um, for these really rugged uh, terrain, this country that has, you know, not only a lot of good ambush territory to attack prey, but also a lot of good escape territory to get away from other predators like wolves uh, that pose a threat to them and then especially their kittens if you're a mom. The last episode in June is a topic episode all about biomimicry and its promise for the future. So I'm well versed in mimicry, having studied biology for so many years and seeing a lot of examples in nature myself. When I heard the term biomimicry, I will fully admit that I thought that it was some sort of spin off this term, but I was definitely wrong. So the entire discipline was originally coined by Janine Bynus in 1997 and her book called Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. And she also happens to be the founder of the Biomimicry Institute. So how she defines biomimicry as a practice that learns from and mimics the strategies found in nature to solve human design challenges. And from her book, she dives a little deeper into what the approach of biomimicry is. So first, and these are direct quotes, one, nature as model. Biomimicry is a new science that studies nature's models and then imitates or takes inspiration from these designs and processes to solve human problems. Two, nature as a measure. Biomimicry uses an ecological standard to judge the rightness of our innovation. Three, nature as a mentor. Biomimicry is a new way of viewing and valuing the world. It introduces an era based not on what we can extract from the natural world, but on what we can learn from it. The Biomimicry Institute also has a fantastic website, and I read it pretty much front to back to really truly understand how biomimicry is different from other forms of design. On their website, it lists the three essential elements of biomimicry. So the first one is emulate which is the scientific research-based practice of learning from and then replicating nature's forms, processes, and ecosystems to create more regenerative designs. In other words, using sound science and research to deduce natural processes and then reproducing that function in design. Next is ethos, which is the philosophy of understanding how life works and creating designs that continuously support and create conditions conducive to life. And lastly is connect or reconnect, which to the Biomimicry Institute is the concept that we are nature and find value in connecting to our place on earth as part of life's interconnected systems. Reconnect as a practice encourages us to observe and spend time in nature to understand how life works so that we may have a better ethos to emulate biological strategies in our designs. And on that last note, there's a direct quote from the website that I think is insanely powerful, and it is this, biomimicry encourages conservation for ecosystems and its inhabitants because they hold the knowledge we need to survive. Oh, that is so powerful. 
And expanding upon that, as I was reviewing the mass of literature and peer-reviewed papers on this, I found this fantastic quote by Rajeshkar Rao in his paper called Biomimicry and Architecture from 2014, and it's, quote, Animals, plants, and microbes are the consummate engineers. They have found what works, what is appropriate, and most important, what lasts here on Earth. This is the real news of biomimicry. After 3.8 billion years of research and development, failures are fossils, and what surrounds us is the secret to survival. Wow, that is so powerful. So in a nutshell, nature has already solved all of the problems that has been thrown at it. And so it is reasonable to assume that the problems we're currently experiencing somewhere in nature has already solved that problem. We just have to find what that solution was and figure out a way to apply it to that same problem. And there you have it, a sample collection of June's episodes and its wide range of topics. As a little sneak peek for the near future, the next set of episodes are going to be similar to June, a mix of topics, headlines, and interviews, and then we're transitioning to the next series. I'm in the middle of recording it right now, and I can't wait to announce it to all of you. As always, thanks again for being a part of the Rewildology community. If you'd like to support the show, give the podcast a rating or review wherever you listen, share your favorite episode with a friend, sign up for the Rewildology newsletter, or purchase some podcast swag and support our conservation partners. Happy July, everyone. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.